Hey, while we were working community, I want to take time to say, I hope you had a great holiday. I hope you traveled well, ate lots of turkey, ran your 5Ks, shopping, so on and so forth. What we've decided to do for this episode is to give a highlight of some of our biggest moments on the show since we're coming up on our two-year anniversary. Summer, can you believe that it's been two years of while we're working? It definitely does not feel like two years, Joey. I think, you know, maybe feels like a year maximum, but it's been such a cool journey. Uh, hearing from our listeners and and working on the show each week to bring, you know, cool content for people leaders. So can hardly believe it and looking forward to many years to come. Yeah. Yeah, same, same. And you're right. If, if time is moving fast, uh, we're going to put together some compilations of some of our best moments of the show. So you'll see all of my changing haircut background over the years. Uh, but one thing that has stayed consistent is our passion to bring you the most important HR information that you need to be a better people leader. And without further ado, Let's go ahead and jump into our compilation episode. Chica, could you tee us off with what is ego depletion and how are we seeing it show up uh, in our workplaces? This conversation started with a couple of buddies of mine last week when they were just talking about being um, pretty overwhelmed in their work, um, not just in the pandemic hangover, if you will, but just with the constant need to, or feeling that they needed to be moving forward. They needed to be looking at next week and looking at 2023 OKRs, this overwhelming sense of I can't almost work today because I'm worried about what's happening in two months from now. And so one of them brought to me this concept. And when you hear the words ego depletion, right, we understand what depleted is like we're into our reserves. The battery life is way down. But when I did a bit more research around this word of ego, it's not the Freudian sense of ego, right? So it's not the psychology, Dr. Freud, ego. It's it's more the Greek word of ego, which basically stands for self. So self-depletion. Self-depletion is, is another way of phrasing that, right? And so when you think of, and when I did a bit of research, the earlier research of the 90s with this came from a, a dude called Baumeister who ended up writing a, a best-selling book called Willpower. Maybe we can throw that in the notes too, because he has definitely some interesting cuts. And this is where I want to talk about whether we agree or disagree with that. His original studies or research studies was putting people in a room with a bowl of radishes and a bowl of chocolate chip cookies. And he said, okay, so half of the group's going to go for the cookies, half the group's going to be told to go for the radishes. And when they brought them out, uh, what he found was because the people that were eating the radish radishes were more kind of intense on looking at the cookies, his hypothesis was they spent so much time thinking about the cookies while eating the radishes that they almost depleted their mental capacities. So if we come up 30,000 foot and we think about this as a you and me individual contributor, you and me working in the workspace, um, we spend all day making decisions. We spend all day talking about people, talking about processes, talking about systems. We get home and our partner, our spouse, our mom asks us to make a decision. And we're like, uh, what? Because we've depleted ourselves focused on the day of work right? And so spilling that forward, the research now expands to say, you know, when, when people that are ego depleted watch sad movies, they become extra sad or more sad. Not that sad is really quantifiable, but more sad than the regular person would be watching that scene, right? 
that they're not as happy in relationships that they're really close with. Um, and it all stems from this idea of the frontal cortex, or as he would state, Baumeister, the, the interior single cortex, right? Um, it slows down. And so it, it, it almost can't power up as quick. And so therefore, when I'm speaking to my daughters, I'm wondering if they're so ego depleted that sometimes when they turn up to the exam, they've been stressing about all this other stuff. Um, that they can't give their best in the exam because their frontal cortex is not awake. So let me pause there. Thoughts, reactions, um, I could go both ways with this in discussion. Well, with, with a name like Boundmaster, uh, you, you you definitely have gotten my interest of, of checking out the book and, uh, and the research. But I, I think that uh, the moment you started to describe it, I instantly went to uh, Life After Five at my house, which uh, recently, well, because of the pandemic, has turned into a lot of not so much what are we going to make for dinner, but what are we going to order from uh, like from DoorDash? Because it usually becomes the same thing that we order over and over because the idea of making a decision about what to eat is just like, I don't care as long as it's edible and enjoyable, <laughs> but to have to make that um, in a sea of choices uh, is is uh, is very ego depleting. Um, so I can see that after five, uh, and I'll I'll let I'll let Summer share some thoughts, but I could see some stuff manifesting in the. Siri wants to join. Siri wants to join the conversation. Go ahead, Summer. Yes, Chica, really fascinating, and it and. Uh, as Joey mentioned, as you were talking about it, there was definitely a couple of, you know, scenarios that popped into my mind where, you know, I can quickly make the connection of, oh, yes, I've seen that. But then I also started to think about, I don't want to get too far ahead in our conversation, but I also started to think about, oh, my gosh, recognizing this in the workplace and trying to see like, okay, well, how do we even begin to remedy this fatigue so that our team members can have a little more energy or a little more of that battery when when they get home. But you know, it makes me think about if you've ever had a group of friends or maybe a partner who literally would not make any decisions. Hey, what do you want to do today? Or hey, what would you like to eat? It's always like, well, whatever, just pick, you know, and if you on the other side, if you're like, oh my gosh, like I literally have no energy to pick anything else at this point, like please just pick whatever you pick is fine. <laughs> um, I I think that we we do see that. And an example that I, you know, I think is kind of related to Joey's is at the end of the day, just being, you know, just so tired that, you know, the choice of, well, I was going to make a salad and I was going to cook a home cooked meal and maybe I was going to go for a walk quickly goes out the door because the easiest choice is like, you know, a kind of a poor choice, sit on the couch, like just, you know, eat something that's unhealthy or order. Or the person today that's listening to this show or watching it um, and they need to build the right solution for their now hybrid and remote team. If they're coming to you, what are some of the things that you're going to say, go to Gusto because fill in the blank? Yeah, of course. Well, you know, at Gusto, everything starts with our with our mission. It's to create a world where work empowers a better life. And everything that we build and that we put into the hands of customers is to give them peace of mind, help them have personal prosperity, um, and to build great places to work. And so 
the platform is designed to do this. It's designed to help employers take care of their teams and to not just be a, a software tool, but an advisor, um, a product that helps employers and growing businesses navigate a really complex environment. Um, so to Liz, you know, Liz mentioned uh, approveme.com earlier. And so another example of something we're able to do for this company is help them find uh, a research and development tax credit, which is a, a government program that actually enabled them to get $50,000 in tax credits. This is money in their pocket that they can reinvest in the business that they would not have been able to find out about uh, if it weren't for Gusto to help them understand their business and help them navigate the environment. Um, and of course, on top of this, um, you know, Gusto handles payroll, we handle health insurance, we handle 401k, we handle HR. But us being an advisor and a thought partner to the employers that we serve is really what sets us apart. And and you're talking about the product as it stands today, uh, but there's been an evolution. Um, so could you maybe speak to the evolution of Gusto and how you've met the needs of, of businesses along the way? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. So you know, if, we, if we look back 10 years, uh, we had one product, which was a payroll product. And what we've done is we've listened to our customers and and built the things that they've been asking for all along the way. And so we added benefits like health insurance. We added benefits like 401k. Uh, we've added a number of HR tools over the year to evolve from a payroll product to a platform with many, many ecosystem partners to, to meet the needs of growing businesses holistically. And I think if we look forward, we're going to continue to build out functionality that helps the workforce who are increasingly remote. Um, so I mentioned to you, for example, um, recently we've invested a lot in building out state registration so employers can register in new states and international payments in almost 100 countries. These are things that I, I see us continuing to, to build out over the coming years um, as more and more of the workforce is going to be not in the same location um, as the, the business owner. Or the HR department. Yeah, yeah, Liz. I want to I want to bring you back into this conversation. Um, you had mentioned those top places where people are relocating. Um, I was I was wondering if you had any insight into those international destinations that uh, Gusto now supports, and really if you see the idea of being able to relocate as a way to attract uh, talent and to keep talent in your in your business yeah i mean so we we do uh support international contractor payments in over almost 100 countries as eric said what we see is that actually uh, not the borders are they tend to be a little clustered country where we have the highest number of contractor payments is uh in canada and so you know even just right across the border and you know, there are lots of reasons for that that i won't go into but you know, we do see sort of clusters of contractors. And so Canada is one of them. The UK is another. The Philippines is another. And, you know, you can you can um, I don't know that people who live in the United States are relocating to the Philippines, except that businesses are searching for talent who can help them do business across time zones and across geography in ways that work for them. And what I would say is I think that's a that's sort of a broader trend that even smaller businesses, right? You used to think about, you know, big Fortune 500 companies as being, you know, companies across time zones and companies that were doing global business or companies that managed a multi a multi 
modal workforce, right, with employees and contractors and service providers. And as the business environment is becoming more variable, right? So we had the Great Recession and then we had all the talent squeeze and then we had COVID and now we're in an environment where lots of things are changing. And that agility is really coming down for our businesses too, right? The businesses that we serve and they're more likely to need, you know, contractors. We did some research last year where the use of contractors has increased by 43%. Uh, per company on our platform over the last five years. And nine out of 10 businesses say that they intend to use contractors at the same or a more intensive rate going into the future. And that's not just domestic contractors, that's international contractors too. We've seen intense growth there. And so I would say that the sort of trajectory of Gusto has been aligned with the trajectory of the customers that we have and the environment that they face where they need more agility to meet specific project needs. So to bring on contractors, domestic or international, wherever the talent and the cost right intersects for them, but to sort of define what they need as businesses because they know their business better than we know their business. What we've really striven to do is to make a product that recognizes that increased need for agility and then to let businesses sort of create the experience that they need in order to be successful. So For that, we build contractors and multi-state registration, but also to message and to keep employees engaged and to feel cared for and to create that culture across space. We built these HR tools to do employee surveys to keep track of how employees are feeling and to give companies an opportunity to respond, you know, to their employees who are across those distances now and then to show, right, that caring, even though they can't sort of show up in person. And I think you know, what we're really just overall seeing is every, you know, is it just a recognition that every business is unique in its own way and needs its own unique things. And it's the environment is changing. And what we need to do is build a product that gives every business the empowered capabilities to write, create the work experience that is going to attract great people and enable them to take care of those people so those people can do great by the business. I think the the first thing was it was, at least to me, kind of a surprise when I saw that research. And that was an NPR article. I think it was like a PwC like CEO report that they run uh, every year. In the public, you think that, oh, CEOs get fired because of poor financial performance, right? You know, they get replaced, right? Just recently, you know, I'm uh, calling in from Glendale, you know, two or three miles from Burbank, Disney headquarters, right? And we know, you know, Bob Iger recently came back in as CEO, largely because Disney, you know, financially wasn't doing what, you know, its shareholders thought it should be doing, right? And so I think in the general populace, as most people think, yes, CEOs get replaced when their companies don't do well. And as you called out, that was reason number two. But workplace misconduct, reason number one, you know, that I think has been something that we've seen for years now. You know, it's something that we knew and, and have kind of built our company around where now this kind of varies, I think, depending upon your view of an organization, but let's talk about a vertical organization as opposed to a flatter company, right? Where you do have, you know, the ethics, the values, the uh, way forward, which comes from the top down, right? Which leads into the rest of the organization, just simply the way that senior leaders talk to their VPs, the way that VPs then engage with the directors and on down into the organization that's power every moment, you know, that power, that leadership that comes through and that communication is in many ways an example for the other people in that organization, right? I'm not talking about 
something that's complex or unheard of, you know, that's what I think most people see in very vertical organizations, small startups, you know, maybe it's a little bit different where it's, you know, one, you know, leader and then a whole bunch of VPs under them, that kind of a thing. But in general, you know, when you think about company performance, yeah, workplace misconduct is a huge driving factor of not just share price and what I'll just call kind of like value accretion in an organization, but also retention, people sticking around, right? Recognize that the company that they work for in many ways is a reflection of who they are and what they stand for and what their values are. And especially in a tight labor market, right? If you're in a position where you're having people leave a company because of the actions of a CEO, because they know they can go around the corner and get a job at, you know, Schmaz Tech Incorporated, their big competitor, then they're going to go do that, right? And so, you know, when it comes to workplace misconduct, when it comes to executive behavior, you know, it's one of these things where it's been a real challenge to identify such misconduct and where it exists. And I think that has been kind of the easy way out in many ways for a lot of companies to say, yeah, well, how are we going to know that this guy was going to harass somebody? How are we really going to know that, you know, they would lead us down this path of fraud? How are we really, you know, it's tough to know, right? You know, can I swear on this podcast, by the way? Sure, go ahead. Stuff happens. <laughs> Stuff happens, you know, right? Like that was kind of the mentality, I think, for a lot of boards. But now it's, you know, that, that article you quoted from 2018, but just this week, two days ago, an article came out from the SEC that says they're now beginning to enforce legislation on workplace misconduct and holding companies accountable, the SEC, for workplace misconduct and not having the controls in place to get those things in check inside of a company because with technology, it is easier to identify this workplace misconduct, right? These results are out there and we call it in our industry kind of the standard of care, right? What is the minimum amount of check that we should all pursue? What is the minimum amount of spend? How can we cover risk in a cost-effective way, you know, essentially? How do we identify this risk without breaking the bank? And can enough people afford it? Can enough people get it that this should become, you know, the new standard, right? So that's really where, uh, you know, this, uh, where this comes from, which is to say like for so long, I think companies have been able to ignore this because, Hey, how do we track it down? It's not our responsibility. We, we can't do anything about it. Right. But now I think technology has gotten to a point where companies can identify this sort of misconduct. They can take action on it. They can put the tools in place to identify it early. And this isn't just for, you know, management teams and screening when it comes to hiring, but now you have investors who are putting money into management teams and leadership teams, whether it's asset managers, private equity funds, et cetera, you know, they're going to have to start looking at this sort of workplace misconduct as a function of the types of companies that they back. It goes on to say like the employees, they're more proficient, they're more awake. Um, they call it a bonus day um, and they give that to the employees to do chores. Somebody says they do their taxes, um, anything besides work. Uh, you can choose what day. Doesn't have to be, you know, the same day each week, but obviously you do let your superiors know which day. So it was interesting to see that there were companies in the U.S. talking about it, um, but it was more interesting to find out that Henry Ford over a century ago, actually introduced the five-day work week. Um, I did not know over a hundred years ago there were six days that people were working. I cannot imagine that. Um, 
but yeah, so that was surprising to know that. And then it also goes into how, I mean, obviously everyone may know by now that the UK did the data pilot for the four day work week. And out of that pilot, they found out that the four day work week actually helps revenue grow um, within the companies that participated. So I believe they said that revenue grew about 30%. And they said that's due to employees not being so tired. That's due to employees, like once they come back from that three-day weekend or however they choose to select their day, they're on fire and ready to go. So I can see how revenue can increase because you're more focused. You're, you want to, you know, get everything done because now you have that rest, that reset and that relaxation. So I was interested to see that, you know, this is now coming to the U.S. and hopefully it gets adopted adopted by more companies across the u.s though yeah yeah the 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 article was full of different companies that were trying the four-day work week and taryn i want to i want to kind of drill down a little bit about on henry ford and the five-day work week right so 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 many work environments will say like oh you got to put five days in you got to put five days in five days is is gospel five days is bible uh but the five day work week was the alternative it was a safety measure because prior to the whole industrial revolution and some of the laws that were put in place you just worked seven days and it was seven days it was seven days and long hours uh you had child labor you had all these uh unsafe work conditions so part of that evolution of making work better for the worker uh and safer and better for the company was to put the five day guardrails in and so maybe somewhere over the last 200 years we just kind of stopped thinking about like employee health and what it means to have a great work environment so uh for those of you who may be pushing back and say oh well we we only need to do the five out five days you know just remember where it comes from and and now you know so Kind of like that old uh, NBC, the more you know with the uh, the rainbow at the end. Um, <laughs> yeah, Summer, what, what do you what do you think about the five day uh, or four day work week? You know, I I've actually had conversations with several clients and also my peers about this, and I I love the idea. I think for companies that can offer any sort of perks to their team. Uh, it it makes sense to do so. And, you know, usually there's resistance because it's different and it's a departure from what they've done for so long and it seems impossible. But I will tell you that as an employee who worked an alternate work schedule for over 10 years, I will say it is so valued. And once you start getting into the rhythm of what that alternate work schedule looks like from an organization, you adapt just like you do with anything else. And so if you're a company who's maybe thinking a four-day work week isn't realistic as a next step, I've talked in the past a little bit about a 980 work schedule, and that's like a half step getting there. Um, that's The idea of it is a two-week pay period that you are working essentially those 80 hours, but in nine days as opposed to the usual 10. So what that results in is every other Friday off. So again, it's a half step to get there. It's a great way to try it out to see, you know, can we dip a toe in the water? 
And I will say it's a great retention tool because there were a lot of team members that I spoke to over the years that said, gosh, you know what? I would have really considered that other company, but they have a traditional work schedule. And quite frankly, I like having 26 three-day weekends every year. And when you think about it that way, you realize the true impact and how life-changing this can truly be to your team members. So I wouldn't rule it out. Uh, I'm a big fan. Yeah. Yeah. So there was a um, a municipality here, uh, a, a city uh, in New Jersey, uh, Prospect Park City. And the mayor said, you know, Prospect Park is a blue-collar town. So people work shift hours. So now having the opportunity to visit the municipal building up to 6.30 p.m. actually is more convenient for our residents. Mm-hmm. So this article does a great job of presenting the idea of the four-day work week, but also some of those variants to that and the fact that it can apply to more industries than you think. So uh, I think it's a an idea worth pursuing no matter what industry you're in, especially considering that uh, if you're not doing it, a competitor's probably offering it or is offering remote or is offering some sort of flexible working arrangement that is great for team members. And so I, I wouldn't want our audience to get left behind in the whole trend of um, progressing towards a great work environment. Yeah, definitely. Cody, why is uh, effective recruitment so important for a uh, business? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, honestly, just because you can't really operate the business if you don't have the people, right? We can break it down to the most simple form of, you know, if if you'd like to grow, if you'd like to continue to improve processes, um, the the importance of bringing in people with diverse backgrounds, very knowledgeable about different situations and circumstances is what really allows our small business clients to continue to grow. You know, and and I think that the, the big difference in what we're seeing nowadays with a lot of these small business clients is a lot of the recruitment that we we generally do or when somebody calls us, uh, it's reactive, right? Somebody calls me when they're on fire and they don't have a fire extinguisher. And so that that's kind of what they're looking for. You know, my CFO is leaving the company. Um, somebody that's in one of these positions is, is uh, moving on. And so we got to fill it immediately. Um, however, uh, we're seeing that a lot of our small business clients and nonprofits alike are trying to think further off in the future. They're trying to identify what these talent solutions are going to look like for them moving forward. And we're very grateful to be able to help along that process and along that line uh, because you know this really allows our clients to do some proper forecasting. Um, it allows them to kind of establish goals and set up different places where they can they can get to in the future as long as they have these individuals. And we're happy to provide the legwork to make sure that that happens. So, um, you know, yeah, it's a tough market right now. Uh, coming out of COVID, we saw a lot of individuals that that have taken their time getting back into the workforce if they left the workforce for some reason. Uh, we're seeing a lot of individuals that use that you know two to three year period to go back and, and do something a little bit different with their lives. Um, and so people are switching markets, they're moving into different types of positions. So you know right now it's a difficult thing to navigate. And so uh, when one of our clients approaches us and and let's say they they have an Indeed account or they have uh, a job board that they're currently using and they're just not getting the resources that they want, uh, you know, we're able to step in and, and uh, really reach out to passive individuals 
that that might not be looking for a job right now, but once they hear about your company and the the resources that you have, the different things that you're going to bring value wise to them, we're able to go ahead and pull some of those individuals out of their current positions and, and get them working for our clients. Um, so it, it's a difficult road sometimes, uh, but it's one that's extremely necessary if we want to see any growth in any of these industries and businesses. I love the part that you mentioned at the end about it being a difficult road. And one of the things that we talk to uh, with my customers and people who reach out to us for services is just the fact that, you know, HR is a journey, recruiting is a journey, and you don't want to go at it alone. Yeah. So Cody, man, I love what you said at the end there about recruiting being a difficult journey. Um, That's one of the things that we we talk about at Jumpstart all the time is that, hey, entrepreneurs, small business owners, CFOs, COOs, key leaders in the organization, hey, you're taking your business somewhere that maybe you've never been before, or you're going into an environment and you're asking yourself, how can we manage HR? How can we manage recruitment? And do I have all the right answers uh, and all the right thoughts uh, at the table? But when working with our firm, you know, we're we're the advisor, we're that guide for that journey to help you get where you want to go. And so, you know, with recruitment being incredibly important, like you said at the beginning of, of finding the right people to to get the job done, um, we look at things like time to hire and uh, quality of candidate and uh, your current staff and whether there's a, a high level of turnover and if so what things uh, might need to change or tweak in order to ensure the best fit and finding the right person to plug in and, and last for the long term. So, you know, the biggest thing with recruiting these days, honestly, is that you don't know what you don't know. And that's everything from candidate motives and how to screen people over the phone to uh, compensation best practices and where's the market because if you're hiring one person a year or if you haven't had to hire for this particular role in the past two to three years well you may be using an old strategy an old solution that just don't work anymore and so working with us on the recruiting side will help you navigate that journey give you a jump start but cody i wanted to ask you another piece about that too so we talked about fundamentally the importance of recruitment. Let's uh, unpack a little bit and talk about what are some of the components of a really great uh, recruiting process that goes from idea of hiring a person to, you know, that person hit their two-year anniversary because, man, you really got a right fit. What are some of those uh, processes and things that you look for in order to make a great recruiting strategy? Yeah, absolutely. That, that Again, great question. Uh, you know, and I think a lot of individuals out there assume that recruiting is, I post a job, people apply to that job, I call that person, I interview that person. If I like them, we offer them the job and everything's fine. Um, but fact is, is, you know, retention, uh, different things like that really start at the very beginning of this process. When you're talking about getting to the two-year mark with somebody or really kind of establishing yourself as as the firm of their choice from the very beginning, you know, we really are, are talking about some different elements that need to be added in there. Um, you know, and, and what we're actually finding as well is that, you know, a lot of the companies that we work for, maybe they already have somebody on staff who's been tasked with this recruiting, but not having the expertise and knowledge on how to get that person from initial phone call 
you know, we call it cradle to grave, obviously, right? So uh, from that initial phone call all the way through. So some of the processes that I, I really like to sit down with our clients and talk through is first, we really want to understand your job. You know, you can come to me and say that you need a SQL developer or somebody that specializes in Python or whatever the case is. And I can say, oh, absolutely. That's what we'll find. And, and, and generally what that means is we look for just those keywords on a resume uh, in a lot of these circumstances. But that's really not going to get us to the source of what we're looking for. So the first step is really kind of meeting with our clients, understanding exactly what this technology looks like or what this role really looks like. Once we have a very good understanding of that, um, if we need to go out and educate ourselves a little bit on some of this stuff, well, we need to do that. Because when I call a client, or excuse me, a candidate, I, I want to make sure that they know that I understand what they're doing, right? I, I want them to know that uh, they're not just talking to somebody who's looking for that one word on the rest. Wow, Summer, I can't believe it. We've been here for almost two years now. Uh, the shows that we have done, the topics that we've, we've covered, everything from body odor to felonies, you name it, all things in between. If it's in the churn body of knowledge and if it's on the minds of business leaders across the U.S., I'm sure we've covered it in the show and we've got way more topics to tackle in the future. So I don't know, before we get into the to celebrating our two year anniversary with the next episode, Summer, what would you have the what would you want to leave with the people as we take this time to kind of celebrate as we lead into it? Oh gosh, I, I think the first thing that comes to mind is truly just being so grateful. For, um, for you, Joey, uh, for Jumpstart and our clients and our listeners, because let's face it, it wouldn't be any fun if it was just one of us doing this. And it definitely wouldn't be any fun uh, if we didn't have engaged listeners and, and followers. So truly, I think I just have an immense sense of gratitude for all that this has come to be. And I look forward to conversations and news articles on the horizon with the hope that you know we are uh, helping educate and we are helping support business leaders uh, to help create truly uh, just the best workplaces work uh, experience for workers that we possibly can uh, if we've done that um, I'll feel good about everything that we're doing to bring the show to life yeah, yeah. Well, I, I would agree. I, I think we're we're on that mission. I mean, the the companies that have reached out that want to be a part, and we're faithful to uh, companies that have come in and sponsored episodes and, and want to share their information with our audiences. Uh, and just you know, the people who say, "Oh, I listened to the pod and I learned something new." I think we're on that mission, and we we're doing it well. So uh, make sure you tune in next week for our two-year anniversary show episode 104 and until then make sure you're checking out our our growing catalog of podcast shows and youtube clips online and i will see you next week see you next week summer thanks everyone <laughs>